0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting the Pentateuch. This is going to be a different kind of lesson. I'm pausing our interpretation of the books of Moses to address some questions about the historicity of the Pentateuch and the contribution of ancient Near Eastern literature to our understanding of the biblical text. If you'd rather stay in the biblical study of the Pentateuch, feel free to skip ahead to Lesson 9, where we begin our look at the book of Exodus. You'll not miss any significant aspect of the story if you do skip ahead. If you would like to get some more background information on types of literature in the Ancient Near East and how that literature helps us read our Bible, then stay with me for this lesson. I've been listening to the Hardcore History Podcast by Dan Carlin, He's great at reading a wide range of historians on a given topic and then bringing it all together with enthusiasm and insight. His series that i am just started is King of Kings. It's about Cyrus the Great of Persia. And Carlin tells the story of Thermopylae and the 300 Spartan warriors who stood up to the entire Persian army. What interests me is how Carlin uses his references. For most of the story, he relies on Greek historian Herodotus who was a toddler when the battle took place. So though not a contemporary, he was quite close. Carlin tells how the 300 Spartans arranged themselves across the narrow pass of Thermopylae against the one million strong Persian army in this very cinematic kind of you shall not pass moment. And then Carlin adds in a quote taken from Plutarch. It's a great line. He calls it a Clint Eastwood quote the Persians tell the Spartans that if they lay down their weapons and shields, then they're all free to go. Nothing will happen to them. To which the Spartans respond, come and get them. A little later in the podcast, Carlin gives a biblical view of the Persians by quoting the sack of Babylon. That happens after the feast of Belshazzar. It's the handwriting on the wall passage from Daniel 5. And Carlin loves the passage, especially what The hand wrote, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uparsin, which means numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Carlin reads what Daniel tells Belshazzar, Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Uparsin, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Then Carlin makes this comment. None of that's true, but that's how the Bible story goes. Wait a minute. In the story about the 300, you used a quote from Plutarch to put words in the mouths of the Spartans regarding their weapons. Come and get them. Well, Plutarch was a teenager during the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. That's 500 years after the Battle of Thermopylae. And you present Plutarch's quote as part of the story without commenting on its truthfulness. Then, when you come to tell a story in the Bible, you make the comment that we know it never happened, and you say it in an offhand way as though all your listeners are going to agree. Well, of course, it's in the Bible. We know it's not true. It's a bit of interesting anti-Babylonian PR. But then I'm left asking, how do we know it never happened? You know, that's my first question. My second question is, why did Dan Carlin feel the need to make sure we knew he was not actually suggesting the biblical account is true. I doubt he believes that Plutarch's come-and-take-them quote actually happened. What stands out to me is that he found no need to clarify about the truthfulness or lack of truthfulness of his Greek sources, and yet did feel this need to distance himself from the biblical account. What is going on there? So I believe Dan Carlin is giving us a typical example of scholarly pressure to devalue the historicity of the Bible. And why does he do that? Is there solid evidence that the biblical story is fictitious? Carlin doesn't claim to be a historian or a biblical scholar. He's recommunicating an attitude that is likely present in the scholars he's reading. And like Carlin, we could go to these scholars and get a lot of good historical information. We just need to be asking, what are their presuppositions? What leads them to this prejudice against the Bible as a historical source, especially when they're ready to accept so many other less well-attested documents? This is the question I want to address. Christians should have no fear at all over the finds of archaeology, And all the interesting parallels and similarities we see in the Bible and in the ancient world. I love reading ancient flood myths and the creation stories and law codes and covenant examples All that that come outside of the Bible. Ancient history is not a threat to the Bible or to a Christian's walk with God. The interpretations of that history, however, can be a threat to the Christian worldview especially when we take scholarly assertions as fact without recognizing the presuppositions that lead to those claims and interpretations about history. Why do we know that the biblical story of Belshazzar never happened? Why do we know that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch? Why do we know that Abraham is just a myth like King Arthur? What is the basis for such assertions? I don't think we know those things at all. We have good reason for believing in the historicity of Moses and Abraham and Belshazzar. But what's our goal for this lesson? I'm not out to try to prove that the Bible is God's word or prove the historicity of all the biblical stories. I don't think that's possible for any historical document. You know, We can show proofs that support the rationality of believing in the historicity of the Bible, but we can't absolutely prove that what we have is the accurate interpretation of a historical event. In the end, I've come to a decision myself, and to be forthright, I've come to a fixed conviction. I have, as a basic presupposition, this belief that the Bible is the Word of God and that the Bible is true on all events about which it speaks. It is true and truthful, factual, correct when it speaks about historical events. And I'm not out to prove that right now. I'm just telling you what my presupposition is. It is a belief supported by a number of factors, but ultimately resting on faith. We have to start somewhere as a foundation of knowledge, whether it's ourself, whether it's other scholars, whether it's something revealed from God. I start with these two truths. God exists, and the Bible is his word. So then if proof of the Bible is not the goal, what is the goal? I have two goals in mind. My first goal is to address some of the scholarly presuppositions so that we grow in our discernment of reading scholarly discoveries and benefit from the good without swallowing the whole interpretation that might be given. For example, scholars agree that there are many ancient flood stories several in the ancient Near East, and others throughout the world. That's agreed on. Nobody really disputes that. How to understand the origins of those stories is not agreed on. Though some scholars will present their interpretation as though it's fact. They'll tell you how the stories came to be, but that's theory coming out of their own presuppositions. The goal is to grow in our ability to learn from history without uncritically accepting an interpretation about the historical findings. My second goal is to help you grow as an interpreter of Scripture by better understanding the literature and culture in the Bible. In fact, this is where the more important benefit lies. Critics of the Bible raise some very good questions, and these challenges force us to consider more carefully what we have in the Bible. The study of ancient Near Eastern literature and culture has provided us with good answers to skeptical questions, but answering the critic is not the primary benefit. The primary benefit is that in the end, thanks to the critic, we understand the Bible better. They required us to do some hard work and some careful thinking. They're keeping us accountable to our claims about the Bible. That's a healthy thing. So, as we spend a little time now answering some questions, I hope you'll be strengthened in your ability to defend the historicity of the Bible. Even more, I hope you will have better insight into how to read and interpret the Bible yourself. You may not care much about the questions, but I can assure you the answers turn out to be pretty helpful for future study. Now, we're going to have to limit our discussion somehow, because the historicity of the Bible is a huge topic I'm going to focus on the documentary hypothesis because this is a primary view about the books of Moses for non-evangelical biblical scholars and because it is something you will likely come into contact with whether you know it or not. Scholars don't agree on the details of the hypothesis. There are a lot of versions out there. Here's the basic idea. We start with some very good observations, like if Moses wrote the Pentateuch, where did he get his source material from for all of Genesis? You know, the creation, the flood, Abraham, and so on. Moses wasn't there. How does he know that stuff? And who wrote the end of Deuteronomy about his death? You know, he didn't write about that, did he? So who wrote it? These are good, basic source questions which grew into full blown skepticism. So in 1878, in his History of Israel, the German scholar Julius Wellhausen promoted the view that the Pentateuch and the book of Joshua were put together by a later editor who worked from four different sources. Maybe you've heard about this. It's the J-E-D-P idea, the J or Yahweh source, the E or Elohist source, the P or priestly source, and the D or Deuteronomic source. So today, if you read a moderate or liberal commentary on the Pentateuch, The author will spend a good bit of time arguing which parts of a particular passage come from J, E, P, or D. The J source uses the name Yahweh and provides a more primitive view of God. The E source uses the name Elohim and is generally associated with the northern kingdom of Israel. The P source focuses on temple ceremony. It's the priestly source. It it desires to centralize power in Jerusalem. And the D source focuses on one God who's made covenant with one people. After Wellhausen, the German scholar Martin Noth, working in the second half of the 20th century, is generally accredited with the refinement of the documentary hypothesis that's broadly accepted. He argued that the first four books of the Pentateuch were written by J and E, and then edited by P, the priestly source. And then the D source wrote Deuteronomy. And all of this is said to have been written well after King David, so not anywhere near Moses in the 1400s BC. J is said to be the earliest, around 850 BC, and D the latest, around 621 BC. The date of D is more precise because it's argued that the king of Judah, Josiah, did not actually find the book of the law in his reforms of the temple, but that under his reforms, the book of Deuteronomy was written. It's a going back and rewriting history. To get into the theory much further would take a a lot of time, especially considering the significant amount of disagreement among scholars on how to decide who wrote what. So with any given passage, you have lots of different people arguing um, how to divide it out between J, E, D, and P. We could ask, why believe this theory anyway? Uh, The disagreement among documentary hypothesis scholars on the Vast majority of detail suggests that the hypothesis is not really that helpful. You know, it doesn't get us to an end result or into further understanding. A number of scholars, and I think Robert Alter, the Jewish scholar that I've quoted, would fit into this category. They would reject the usefulness of trying to trace back the sources. Instead, they've decided to focus on the literature we do have rather than an imaginary theory on how that literature came to be. And the more this newer group of biblical scholars study the Pentateuch, the more they affirm that we've got a unified work of literature that bears the stamp of one author. So not all non-evangelical scholars are going to agree with the documentary hypothesis or even with its usefulness. There are other scholars out there who will argue for the unity of authorship for various parts of the Bible— But still, the documentary hypothesis is is widely commented on, or it provides presuppositions that still exist. So let's consider three of the assumptions made by the documentary hypothesis scholars about the literature of the Pentateuch, and then see where our answers to those assumptions will lead us. So the first assumption is one that you might have heard of before. This is it. Assumption number one, the Hebrews were an oral society whose tradition was later gathered and written down. The idea here is that the text of the Pentateuch came down over hundreds of years as oral tradition. and That tradition contained various versions of similar stories that were available for a later editor to put together in order to form the biblical text. And that some of the early sources of Genesis came down as oral tradition may be true. But we don't know. We have noticed by the ten toledoth or generations references used to structure Genesis that Moses may have had ancient written genealogical records at his disposal for some of what he wrote. And details of the other narratives about Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Joseph might have come down in written form or might have come down in oral form. We don't, we don't know that. So the idea about oral transmission of sources prior to Moses might be a true theory, but to suggest that the Hebrews at the time of Moses must have passed down their traditions orally is to reject the cultural melu in which the Bible says Moses lived. Now let me explain that. In other words, major peoples all around Israel were writing things down during the time period of Moses. So why would we assume that Israel wasn't? Since we're told Moses grew up in the royal house of Egypt, let's consider Egypt first. If we suppose the history of Moses is true, then what kind of exposure would Moses have had to written text? Well, Egypt was writing long before Moses. The pyramid texts predate him by 1500 to 1000 years. The tale of Sinue is a narrative story from Abraham's period. There's wisdom literature, including advice from a father to son against adultery that looks very biblical. There are hymns, like the hymn to the son, from Moses' own time period, which elevates one God above all others. There are royal records, including records of military campaigns written by officials out in the field, providing a parallel for how we might imagine Moses and some of his co-officials like Joshua writing down events as they happened in the field. So here's our response to the assumption that the Pentateuch came down as oral tradition. By the time of the life of Moses, the empires of the ancient Near East were all producing written records. The record given to us in the Pentateuch fits with the times in which it claims to have been produced. Our response is not only that Egypt was writing during the time of Moses, but that all the major empires were writing. The Sumerians were writing. The Hittites were writing. The Babylonians were writing. We have king lists and flood stories in Hammurabi's law code. We've all the suzerain vassal treaties. We've the Armana letters around the time of Joshua's context of the promised land written by Canaanite rulers to Egypt asking for help against invaders. No help came. That's our first assumption, that the text came down orally, the assumption that the Hebrew tradition was not written as it happened, but passed down orally over hundreds of years before being put into written form. And we can reject that assumption for the writings that come from the time of Moses. Peoples were writing. Moses could have written just as the Bible says Moses wrote. Another assumption by supporters of the documentary hypothesis is that the style of the Pentateuch is best explained by various authors. So we're going to have to consider some examples of style, and here are three points of style that scholars have noticed. First, the name used for God is varied throughout the Pentateuch. For example, the first account of creation in Genesis 1, 1-2-3, uses the name Elohim, usually translated as God in English, whereas the second account of creation in Genesis 2, 4-25, consistently uses Yahweh Elohim, translated as Lord God. So why do that? Why just use the name Elohim in basically the first chapter and the name Yahweh in the second chapter? Well, some scholars suggested that one author wrote the first account, another author wrote the second account, and a third person put the two accounts together. Second, shifts occur in some texts between the first person and the third person. This happens more in the Psalms and the Prophets. You'll be reading along as the prophet speaks about God in the third person. You know, The Lord says to Israel. And then the text will switch to the first person. I say to you, O Israel. And you're left for a moment wondering, who's the I? And then you figure out, oh, it's the Lord. It just switched. Well, for example, in Exodus 3.15 where Moses is supposed to tell the people the Lord God has sent him, he then is to switch into the first person as though speaking for God and say, this is my name forever, this is my memorial name to all generations. So there's supposed to be a switch from third person about God to first person as though God is speaking directly. To be honest, when I read that sort of thing, I just think, well, that's the style of the Bible. But some scholars think it indicates two different styles of two different writers One who wrote in first person, another who wrote in third person, and then they get mashed together by an editor. Third, repetition and doublets are used regularly. I mentioned the issue with doublets in our Isaac and Jacob lesson, where you have two stories of meeting a wife at a well, or two stories of lying about a wife, being your wife, and documentary scholars would say, see, two different authors producing different versions of a story put together later by an editor. Along with doublets, we frequently see direct repetition in biblical texts. For example, a person will repeat almost word for word what the Lord or some other person has said to them. Such as when Abraham's servant takes up five Bible verses in Genesis twenty-four thirty-seven to 41 to repeat exactly what Abraham had just said in verses 3-8 through eight at the beginning of the chapter. Now, in our day, that kind of repetition within the same chapter would be considered poor style. Even more difficult to swallow is the major repetition that happens in Exodus 36 to 40. I mean, this is typically where you stop reading Exodus, where the text repeats all the different materials needed to put together the tabernacle in the same language just used by God when he gave the vision of the tabernacle to Moses in chapters 25 to 30. You know, what's up with all that repetition killing the flow of the narrative for us modern readers? These are all logical questions that come up just from observing the stylistic curiosities in the biblical text, from the different names of God to the switches between first and third person to frequent repetition of exact phrases or blocks of text. And for modern authors, that can look like bad style. The documentary hypothesis scholars claim these stylistic quirks are examples of various sources being edited by a final author. That's how they explain the bad style. And that sounds logical. But then archaeology started giving us a multitude of written documents from the time of Moses for us to consider. And to be honest, this was not material that was available to Julius Wellhausen. He didn't have these archaeological finds when he was trying to figure this stuff out. What we find is that Ancient Near Eastern literature uses various names for the same God in the same document, shifts from first person to third person in a passage, and repeats dialogue word for word in the same text. There's a well-preserved example in the Hittite legend, which you can look this up on the internet. It's called King Kurta or King Karat, depending on who's translating the title. And not only does it include shifts from first to third person as you're going along, but it also includes this section of a dream given to King Kurta. And it's it's a long dream, and it's given to him by the god El. And then it's all repeated verbatim as Kurta carries out the instructions that he was given by El. It's very much like the vision for the tabernacle Moses receives and then carries out. And so then here's our response to the assumption about style implying various authors. On the contrary, the style of the Pentateuch matches the style of other ancient Near Eastern documents, which are presumed to be written by one author. The logic made sense, but the assumption proved false. Rather than suggesting multiple authors these quirks of biblical style suggest that the Pentateuch fits well within the style preferences of the ancient Near Eastern literature. We have to step outside of our cultural prejudice on what denotes good style, and that will allow us to then consider the effect accomplished by the style the ancients used. So instead of seeing the two names of God in Genesis 1 and 2 as suggesting different authors or poor writing, we're led to ask, Why would the same author use these two different names? Why Elohim in the first story and Yahweh in the second story? Now, if I understand that as being intentional, that changes how I approach the text. Now I'm asking, what is the author, what is Moses communicating? Now, I might come to recognize that the name Elohim communicates to the ancients that we're speaking about God as supreme, who rules over everything, the God who creates everything. I mean, that's what I get from the name Elohim. And then the same God who is Elohim is also Yahweh. And when we're using the name Yahweh Elohim, that suggests imminence or presence of God with man. He's the one who brings man into covenant relationship with himself, which is more the theme of Genesis 2. So in this sense, the name of God used in the context could direct us towards the theological theme, or could work together with the theological theme of the section. Likewise, with the repetition, instead of assuming we have bad style or multiple authors, we can accept that we have ancient Near Eastern style and focus our thinking on why would an author use this style? You know, why would a servant repeat the exact same words of his master or of his Lord? Well, one reason would be to show obedience. This is what my master told me. This is what I am doing. Another reason would be for the biblical author to emphasize a point. You know, if you repeat something twice, even if it's in the mouth of two different people, then it emphasizes the point being made by the speech. Often with biblical dialogue, the repetition is meant to highlight a slight change in the words. I've learned this. You should always look, is there a little change? It sounds like repetition, but it's not quite. So when Eve repeats the command about the tree, telling the serpent, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die, the close observer recognizes that Eve added, or touch it, to the command of God, and then you're left wondering, Why'd she do that? Why did Eve add that little bit? You know, it raises a question. So we've responded to the second assumption that the style of the Bible implies various authors, and we've, we've said, no, it actually fits very well with ancient Near Eastern literature. The third assumption is similar to the style assumption. It's this, that the structure of the Pentateuch is best explained by various authors. I've commented some on structure. If you remember, when we talked about the overlapping pattern that biblical authors sometimes use, such as in the story of Isaac, overlapping the stories of Abraham and Jacob, that's in Genesis 24 to 26. And then there's also the presence of the Judah narrative in Genesis 38, right in the middle of the Joseph story. And if we consider this to be bad stitching together of various authors by an editor, we miss what Moses is doing with skillfully weaving Judah into the Joseph story, both as a foil to highlight the character of Joseph, and also as the brother who will share with Joseph in the final prophecies regarding the firstborn. There's a reason that the Judah story is there. Ancient Near Eastern parallels can help us recognize these structures that maybe we're not used to in our modern day, and thereby help us better to interpret what the author is communicating. So here are two more examples. First, the use of suzerain vassal treaty form explains the unity of the various genres found in the book of Deuteronomy. One of the challenges we're going to see when we read Deuteronomy comes from the shift of genre through the whole book. You know, you think you're reading one thing, and then all of a sudden it becomes something else. You start with historical narrative, and then you move into something like sermon or theological reasoning which then becomes a long list of laws before you shift into a chapter on curses and a chapter on blessings, after which you get more theological reasoning, and finally historical narrative, which includes a couple of hymns and a report of Moses' death. If this is the work of a final editor without any structuring principle, we'd have to say it's a pretty poor job of editing. So what is the structuring principle? Well, there's more than one, and I'm going to give you one now. The other you're going to have to wait till we get to Deuteronomy. But 100 years ago, if you asked a biblical scholar what genre or literary form contains narrative, law, blessings, and curses, they would have said none. And we had no archaeological evidence of any such form. Now we have thousands of documents containing this mix of genre. You do, do you have a guess at what it is? Now, these are the elements we see in the multitude of suzerain-bassal treaties discovered in the ancient Near East. We have the title of a great king, a historical prologue, general and detailed stipulations, commands for regular reading and deposition, a call of witnesses, a list of blessing, and a list of curses. All of these elements are present in the book of Deuteronomy. You know Moses took the suzerain vassal treaty as a basic form And then he developed it into a fantastic piece of ancient Near Eastern literature. And interestingly, these are the elements of a second millennium Suzerain-Vassal treaty, not a first millennium Suzerain-Vassal treaty. Scholars have noticed a shift in the pattern from the second millennium to the first millennium. So before David, in the time of Abraham and Moses, you would encounter one form, And after David, during the time of the divided kingdom and the exile, you would encounter another form. The changes involved dropping out the historical prologue, dropping out the requirement of deposition and reading, and no more blessings. It was a streamlining of covenant. Forget our past relationship, who cares? Forget the blessings, and you can read it or not. That's up to you. You What we're left with is the king's title, call of witnesses, the stipulations, and the curses. Basically, do this law or I will curse you. That's what you get in the first millennium. And it's not the form that we recognize in Deuteronomy, which includes all the older elements, like the command for regular reading and deposition in Deuteronomy 31.10 and 25, a call to heaven and earth as witnesses in Deuteronomy 32, one, a historical prologue in chapters 1 through 3, and a list of blessings in twenty-eight one through fourteen. This is why this is important. The documentary hypothesis theorizes that King Josiah had Deuteronomy written in six twenty-one B.C., about four hundred years after this second millennium treaty form had become obsolete. So either Josiah's scribes produced a truly remarkable bit of historical fiction, or Deuteronomy was written according to the form of its times during the second millennium before David. The historical fact that has come to light in the discovery of all these ancient Suzerain-Vassal treaty documents is that Deuteronomy fits 1400 BC and the time of Moses much better than 621 BC and the time of Josiah. That's the fact. How we interpret that fact is then up to us. Here's one final example about structure, and it's this. Chiasm explains the repetitions found in the flood narrative while also showing the high level of unity in that story. The flood narrative in Genesis 6 9 to 9 19 really gets torn apart by the documentary hypothesis, with various parts attributed to the J source, other parts to the P source, and other parts to some final editor. One of the observations that supposedly supports various authors is the requirement for Noah to take on board two pairs of all animals in chapter 6, and then the requirement in chapter 7 that he take on board seven pairs of clean animals. And for the life of me, I can't understand why this is proof of more than one author. Critics say this is evidence of two authors, because the first author just knew about the two pairs, and then the second author wanted to make sure there were seven pairs of clean animals. But if that's the case, I say it's also evidence of poor editing. You know, it really wouldn't have been that hard for the editor to adjust one set of instructions to fit the other set of instructions so that they both match, so that either in Chapter 6 we have two pairs plus seven pairs of clean animals, or in Chapter 7 we have two pairs plus seven pairs of clean animals. You can really easily put them together. But in the end, it's not really that much of a mystery after all. You know, Why add the seven pairs of clean animals in Chapter 7? Well, if we're going to sacrifice some lambs when we get out of the ark, we better have more than two. Now That's not so hard to figure out, and I didn't need the author to tell me that in chapter six. If he adds it in chapter seven, I can figure out what's going on. What we have in the flood of count is not a stitching together of several stories. What we have is an artfully communicated, unified narrative. We're not trained to look for chiastic parallels in literature, so we often don't see this. Our Western training is much more linear. But once you start looking, once you start seeing biblical examples, then you begin to notice parallelism in the Bible. And when that happens, you start seeing it quite frequently because it's there a lot. For example, with the flood story, have you ever noticed that 40 days of rain is not the only use of the number 40 in the story? Now, probably not, because we know the Sunday school story and the 40 is just mentioned once. And so then when we read it, we don't even notice that there are two 40s. Or have you noticed the number 150? And that the number 150 is used twice. Now, as it turns out, the flood narrative is an 11 part chiasm. We start and end with a reference to Noah and his three sons. One reference to Noah and his sons would fit well with what we've seen throughout Genesis. But the double reference, that stands out. That's not happening throughout Genesis. So to see Noah and his three sons at the beginning and Noah and his three sons at the end suggests parallelism, and that gets us to start looking. You know, what do we see in between? In the second frame, in 6.11 to 22, we have a vow to destroy the earth by flood and a promise of covenant. Then in 9, 1 to 17, we have a promise never again destroy the earth by flood and the cutting of covenant. In the third frame, we have in 7, 1 through 9, the family of Noah entering the ark and the clean animals being mentioned. Then in eight fifteen to 22, the family of Noah exiting the ark and the clean animals being mentioned. In the fourth frame, we have in seven ten to 16, 40 days of rain and the mention of the year, month and day. Then again in eight six to fourteen another mention of forty days after the appearance of the mountaintops, and the mention of the year, month, and day. Finally in seven seventeen to twenty-four, the waters prevailing for one hundred and fifty days, followed in eight one B to five by the waters receding for one hundred and fifty days. In the very center of the chiasm, we have these words in eight one A, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. We know this doesn't mean that God forgot all about Noah, like he got distracted. The language that God remembered is covenantal language. It means that God brought to mind the promise he had made to Noah. He did not forget Noah during the chaos of the storm, but he carried him through just as he had promised. The structures of ancient Near Eastern literature do not support the assumption that the Pentateuch is best explained by various authors. To the contrary, we can now give this response. The structure of the Pentateuch is best explained as well-unified literature employing ancient Near Eastern forms. The archaeological discoveries in ancient Near Eastern literature have done what archaeological findings steadily do prove that the Bible is the most accurate source text for its time. And yet I believe that many scholars will continue to hold the Bible up to higher standards than they hold any other ancient text, and will continue to feel the need to distance their own opinions from the assertions of Scripture. I believe many scholars hold the two basic presuppositions that affect how they think and feel about the Bible. At first, there's widespread anti supernaturalism in the modern scholarly world. This underlies everything. Scholars are under pressure to reject the belief that God acts in our world. So, if Deuteronomy predicts that a king will reign in Israel or that Israel will experience the full curse or destruction in exile, then Deuteronomy must have been written after those events because prophecy is supernatural. The supernatural doesn't happen. Therefore, fulfilled prophecy doesn't happen. Maybe it got written just before the events happened, and so that it's a pretty good educated guess. A 621 BC writing of Deuteronomy removes all the supernatural from the prophecies in the book. This anti-supernatural bias can underlie the view of scholars who otherwise seem positive about the biblical story. Recently, I listened to a couple of interviews of the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson, who champions many conservative values and clearly loves Old Testament narrative. Yet as you listen closely, you discern that Peterson's view of God and the stories of the Bible align with a rejection of the supernatural. He's a psychologist, and he has a very high view of the human mind, and that's how he understands religion. Religion is a product of the human mind. He loves the story of creation and of Cain and Abel and of Jesus because he sees in these stories support for his worldview, his narrative, which, while supporting conservative values, rejects the objective existence of God. And so when we take something potentially good from a scholar like Jordan Peterson, we also need to recognize what are his presuppositions, you know, what are underlying his views and his claims, along with this anti-supernatural presupposition some scholars also hold to an anti-religious bias and not only does the bible purport supernatural interaction in the world but the bible itself is a religious book and so some scholars assume cannot be taken seriously as history if the source is religious it can't be objective we can push back against both presuppositions it is actually irrational to claim a belief in god and then assert that God can't work in the world supernaturally. If belief in God is rational, then belief that God acts is rational. If God is real, then we should expect supernatural events to be part of the historical record, or we have a false record. And though religious people are biased, that doesn't mean that religious people can't produce accurate history. All people are biased. A Marxist historian is going to lean towards a certain interpretation of history that supports his views. An atheist is going to lean towards an interpretation that supports his views. And both will choose what to write about in history according to what their worldviews claim to be significant. All people have presuppositions that underlie their interpretation of the world and their interpretation of history. Everybody acts out of a worldview. As Christians, we can learn from all people. We owe a great debt to archaeologists and scholars of ancient history, whether Christian or not Christian, who've provided us with invaluable insight into the times and cultures that surround biblical history. We should be grateful. At the same time, we should also be discerning, recognizing that scholars are going to interpret the historical data according to their own presuppositions And they're usually not going to tell you what those presuppositions are. These are my presuppositions. The Lord God, he is true. He has created the heavens and the earth. He is not defined by us. We are defined by him. He's not a result of our imagination. We are a result of his imagination. And because he is good and powerful and loving and wise, he has communicated to us through his word, the Bible. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of the Pentateuch, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.